0: Disappearance at Clifton Hill centers on a troubled young woman who returns home to Niagara Falls after the death of her mother, only to be haunted by the memory of a long-ago kidnapping that she believes she witnessed. The film stars Tuppence Middleton, Hannah Gross, and a rare acting appearance by David Cronenberg. My guest today is the film's director and co-writer, Albert Shin. Nice to see you.
1: Nice to be here. Thank you.
0: Uh, congratulations on the movie! Oh, thank you. We were talking uh, a little bit earlier about what a journey this has been for you. So you said about five years in the making.
1: Yeah, it. it I mean, I guess actively five years, but uh, this film is sort of based on a on a real uh, memory that happened to me. So and it happened when I was a, a young boy. So in a lot of ways, it's you know thirty years in the making. Yeah,
0: your entire life. Yeah. Well, let's start kind of at the beginning. And for people listening, this show's heard across the country. For people listening, you know, on the way west and the way east, who maybe haven't been to Niagara Falls, everyone I think has an idea of what it's like. Uh, What do people need to know about Niagara Falls?
1: Well, um, yeah, I guess you know the obvious thing is when people think of Niagara Falls, not even just in Canada, but anywhere around the world, they think you know this incredible natural wonder, which is the falls itself, Mm -hmm. which is of worth you know worth the price of admission which is free but it's uh, yeah, really yeah. worth kind of seeing with your very own eyes and it and it's, and it's an incredible wonder but you know the city of Niagara Falls is also um, an interesting place because it's a it's a border town it's a it's a tourist town and it's um uh, you know the falls I guess isn't enough so right. over you know the last century really it's sort of developed into a kind of an interesting place for people to go and families to go, and through that there was, a, you know, sort of their big tourist promenade street, which is a, a street called Clifton Hill, which is filled with, um, you know, the, the wax museums and the haunted houses and the uh, and the arcades, and it's sort of a, a very very it's an it's a stark sort of con- uh, contrast to the falls, which it's kind of butts up against.
0: Right. This natural beauty of the Mm -hmm. falls and then Clifton Hill with its neon and lights and there's, Mm -hmm. and it's noisy. There's always Mm -hmm. sort of lots of, of, of sound everywhere you go, people trying to get you to come into Mm -hmm. the, to the, uh, attractions and that kind of thing. And it's kind of, to me, uh, an odd place because it is. I mean, people live there. You lived. Oh, you almost lived there, right? You, your family lived there yeah, for my, a little while. Yeah,
1: my family lived when my my. Uh, so my parents are, are immigrants from Korea, and when they first immigrated to Canada, they actually settled in Niagara Falls, and bought a motel sort of in the shadows of Clifton Hill, very much like in the film. Did it
0: have the heart shaped jacuzzis in <laughs> it,
1: it? I think it did. Yeah,
0: <laughs> <laughs> but but people live there. People work there at jobs Mm -hmm. other than hawking hot dogs Mm -hmm. on Clifton Hill and that sort of thing. But then you've got this incredible neon strip down the middle of it. And it always seemed to me the stark contrast of not only the the beauty of Niagara Falls and Clifton Hill, but then it's a working town as well. Mm -hmm. And so it has a different feel than most other southern Ontario towns.
1: Definitely. And, you know, it's predominantly kind of Mm tourist-oriented. And so I think it just creates... An uh, an interesting uh, atmosphere and an energy because it it's you know the the industry is based on sort of transient mm-hmm. transactions. It's not about it's really about getting people to come and maybe just stay and spend just a little bit more money yeah, yeah. than they were hoping to, and that's really what it's about. So it, it, I think it's an interesting place that also is visually interesting. You know, you talked about all the neon lights mm-hmm. and all these other things uh, that uh, the that area of Niagara Falls has to offer. And for me, it's, it's personal because I have a connection to that town, but I think it just hadn't really been, uh, utilized in, in, in cinema in the way I thought it could have been. So I think that was an attractive thing as well.
0: How did your parents end up there? That's a good question. You know, they,
1: you know, they were living in Ecuador um, actually, and they lived there for like ten years, and I and I think originally their idea was to to go to the United States. I'm sure, like most people, you know yeah. that, that's what they were thinking. But then they heard something about uh, Canada, and then they went up, and then I think they went in through Niagara Falls, right? And I think they stopped there and they saw these motels, and they were, you know, what they they didn't speak any English really, right. so I think they were like, you know, this is something that we can do, and I think they found a small community there of. Other kind of Korean uh, Korean immigrants, and that's yeah, that's where they settled,
0: and that's where it is. But you never actually lived there. You were born after they left. I was born
1: after they left, but I was born literally right after they left. So what ended up happening is that because their whole Canadian life and community and social circle was there, we were actually. We left technically, but we were actually kind of there for the first few years of my life.
0: Right. So that's your connection. That's where, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you talk about this story about uh, a, a young woman who thinks that she witnesses a crime. She's not really sure what she's seen. And the idea of memory fading and, you know, over a few decades, she's seven when this happens. So, you know, a couple of 25 years later, you know, can you be sure about what you saw 25 years in the past? So when she starts poking around. Part of it is is memory. Part of it is kind of based on fact. She starts to find evidence that would suggest that something happened. There was a podcaster who's a local historian played by David Cronenberg uh, in this film who believes her, but her own sister doesn't believe her. So you've got all this kind of swirling around. But this is, as you mentioned earlier, based on something that kind of happened to you.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is um... – you know, like you know, like we just talked about. I, you know, I spent a lot of my youth in Niagara Falls, and my dad's a, an avid fisherman, and we would fish all the time as a family, down along the Niagara River. And uh, during one of these trips, I kind of wandered off on my own and was in sort of a secluded wooded area. And, you know, I saw, what to me I, at the time I didn't know what it was, but it. I, I know I remember it made me feel very funny and right. strange. And so I kind of repressed it, I think. And then as, you know, a little bit of time passed, I would start to recount this memory of seeing this kidnapping or what I thought was a kidnapping Mm -hmm. or, you know, what I vividly remember is a man taking a boy very violently, throwing him in the trunk of a car and beating him with a tire iron. It's very, very visceral. Image for you know a, a and, five six year old. To, and do you
0: see. really do you think that that actually happened, or is this a trick of memory, or is it a dream that that has stayed with? It? Like, do you think it really happened? Well, so
1: that's so that's what so that was sort of the genesis yeah. uh, of this idea and how we crafted this character, which is, you know, I would recount this story, but you know, it was probably several years after mm-hmm. it had happened, and then what interestingly enough I, this happens to just about everybody is that you know through the passage of time I would start to retell the story and, and the story would change yeah yeah it would it would mutate it would become grander and more and more uh, uh, it would just become a bigger story and then you know more time passes from that and then you start to question whether or not any of that actually happened. Maybe I, maybe the original genesis of it was a make-believe story that I came up with. So, but what was interesting about this story for me was that I could place it to, to a specific place. Right. I could, I remember standing here. I remember seeing it up there. So it was, so there there was very kind of tangible things that I could tie it to, which made me feel like, you know, you know, this has been, it's been over 30 years yeah. since this happened or maybe didn't happen. But um, but just because I could place it to, to certain things, and, and I, there's smells and feels that I that I remember, it was uh, it made me think there was something. I saw, maybe I saw something. Maybe it wasn't a kidnapping. I'm not yeah. sure, uh, but it, I definitely saw something in it, and it definitely made an impression. But that idea of not really knowing what I saw and that line between truth and memory was, I think, an interesting. Um, thematic element to explore in then in this kind of film noir genre that we were trying to kind of kind
0: of do I think that the idea of exploring memory as the basis of a story or the thing that kind of drives the story is so fascinating because you read memoirs you you think about your own memories and I always think of the line that i read in some long ago memoir that I read and I can't think of which it was but the line was, "If it ain't true, it ought to be," and so that's kind of you know that, that's enough. If it makes a better story, I suppose that's the way you tell it. Um, mm-hmm. Is that kind of the way you approach this? Because you've changed a, a, a number of the details from your own memory. Sure. Yeah. And
1: but what you sort of said is the the ethos we gave our our hero of the film, which is uh, this character Abby, who is a kind of a, a colorful storyteller, p- potential pathological liar. Yeah. Um, but someone that's, you know, the story is more important, perhaps, than, than the truth or mm-hmm. the facts of the story. So I thought, you know, it's, um, I think it's just, an, it's it's very, very interesting. And I think it's something that's relatable and people, you know, all the time you see, you know, how memories and, and work with our perception of truth. And I thought, you know, trying to take this noir genre, which has been around in cinema for, for, for 100 years, mm-hmm. in essence, and trying to modernize it and this idea of uh, of the relativity of truth, especially nowadays where, you know, truth is very relative it seems these days. You know, facts are very relative well, these days. Well, there's alternative you know? facts yeah. now, right? So I thought that was a, an interesting sort of subtext to bringing uh, a film which is very much, uh, you know, sort of an homage to sort of some of the older films of, you know, a, a, a few decades ago. But how do I infuse it with something kind of current and relevant in, in the
0: thematic space? Well, I think your movies, uh, and I'm thinking of In Her Place and now Disappearance at Clifton Hill uh, in particular – are personal. They are based mm-hmm. on something, a kernel of truth from your life. And mm-hmm. I think that that makes it feel different as well. There, I, And and I didn't know about the backstory of this, mm-hmm. but there is sort of, a, 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 an I don't know, an aura or something that comes out of that, that has to infuse itself in the film somewhere.
1: Sure. And for me, it's, you know, the, the thing I always tell, you know, my friends and other filmmaking collaborators and you know anybody that I'm talking to is that you know cinema has been around films and and TV. It's been around for you know mm-hmm. well over a hundred yeah, years yeah. now. It, you know there's a lot of things that have been done and explored. So for me to bring something at least interesting or new, it's I think it's about specificity. You have to you know I'm, this is a we're playing in the noir genre. So yep. these are there's tropes and things that people recognize. But how do I break? Why why does this movie have to be made?
0: A film like this. Uh, is very reliant on casting. One of your stars, David Cronenberg told me one time, 90% of being a director is casting. And so let's, you know, walk through the cast a little bit here and, and, uh, tell me what appealed to you about each of these actors. Tuppence Middleton, I know her from Downton Abbey. She was Lucy on Downton Abbey. Uh, I see nothing of Lucy in this film. What was it about her and her work that that made you cast her?
1: Well, you know, I had first became aware of her when she, I think it may have been her first feature film. This was, you know, maybe ten years ago almost, but it was a it was like a small indie British film. She's she's fr- she's British. She's yeah. from she's from England, and it was a film called Trap for Cinderella, which was just a small indie. I don't know if it it wasn't like a breakout hit or anything right. like that, but she was really really fascinating in the film, and from that point on, I, you know, I'd seen her in, in other things and what struck me about her was that she was kind of endlessly watchable, but she could, she had this interesting quality where she could be vulnerable, but also kind of mysterious at the, at the same time. Right. And that's sort of what I needed for, for this character of Abby. And because she is sort of a, a showman, she kind of, you know, she's a pathological liar. I liked the idea of a, of a Brit having to, you know, right from the get-go, have to put on an accent right. and 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 do all that kind of thing. Just already put on a, a new kind of shield and yep. barrier, a new persona, yeah, a new yeah. persona. So, and you know, when I met when I when I met with her and talked to her, she was just she just looked she looked and felt like my Abby in that I was searching for. And she, you know, she was she was yeah, she was incredible.
0: And she's the 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 key to this entire thing. If you don't want to watch her, if you decide early on ah she's just lying or she's you know off the wall in some way, you're probably not going to be as invested in the in the movie. So even though she does some kind of questionable things and probably well, I think is probably a pathological liar, she's an, certainly an unreliable narr- a narrator uh, at the very least. You still have to want to Care about what happens to her.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, like a lot of sort of uh, noir detective films, it's a, it's a restricted sort of subjective narrative where everything you see in this movie is through the point of view of of Abby. Mm-hmm. And I thought it, it'd be interesting if then if she was also unreliable. Yep. You know, and I thought that was an interesting kind of twist and take on it. You know, you know, I was, you know, you think about Chinatown or something yeah, like that, yeah, yeah. Jack Nicholson and. That's very much a, a a classic gumshoe detective film where we're seeing everything through his perspective. But if, you know, this one, it's, you know, she's unreliable. In a town where everything is unreliable and there's competing narratives and just to have kind of fun with this... Uh, the how malleable truth is these days.
0: Well, you have two unreliable narrators in the film really mm-hmm. because David Cronenberg plays Walter, a podcaster who is a local historian. We see him doing ads for restaurants and things on his podcast, which I found hilarious. <laughs> Because it's David Cronenberg doing mm-hmm. that. Uh, but he has a, a, a local historian uh, podcast. He he uh, scuba dives in the river looking for lost treasures, things that people have thrown over the, the falls and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he has his own kind of version of events as well. Um, David Cronenberg does not act very often. Certainly recently he has not been in front of the camera very much. How did you decide on him and then how did you convince him to do it? Well, and get him into a wetsuit. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it was. It's. It was incredibly serendipitous, and you know, people ask a lot about David, obviously, because you know he hasn't. You know, he's a legend. And yeah. He's one of my filmmaking heroes, and he's not in front of the camera, so it, yeah. it, it is quite the coup to, to get him in a lot of ways, but. He was the easiest person to cast in this film really? surprisingly, which is <laughs> um the role itself wasn't easy. We were having a really, really hard time casting this part because for me it, it was we needed an older mm-hmm. we needed an older actor, but also I wanted somebody that kind of had so, who brought a persona to it uh, right. kind of inherently and we were just having a hard time kind of finding the right person and and you know my producer Neve Fitchman was you know, he knows uh david a little bit yeah. he you know one of the one of david's more famous acting roles was last night which which uh which neve produced yeah for don mckellar for directing. don mckellar yeah. yeah so he so he he suggested david and you know for me i was like well he's gonna say no <laughs> <laughs> so we can just get that out of our heads but you know nothing ventured, nothing gained. we were really desperate at the time so it's like you know like maybe let's give it a shot and we sent him the script and literally within hours <laughs> He got back to us, and we, and then I met with him in his kitchen, talked about the role, and then I threw him in a scuba gear costume and threw him in the middle of the Niagara River. Within (laughs) all within a week, so it was it was it happened really really fast, and um, it was yeah very very uh, you know you know with with every movie you sort of need lucky breaks and kind of things to go your way, and this was definitely one of them for this film.
0: David Cronenberg. The thing that people don't know about him is that he's probably often the funniest person in the room. We have this idea of what he'll be like, but he's really engaging. He's really funny. And he brings that to the character of Walter. There's a there's a humor inherent in the stuff that Walter does that I think is uniquely... I don't know, Cronenbergian. It, it comes from David, I think.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was that was pretty much all we talked about when I met with him for the role. Which is, you know, there's a way to uh, another interpretation of this character would have been something that's just maybe just folksy, right? And that's it. And David and the conversation I had with David was like, how do we how do we change that? How do we mm-hmm. make it more unique and peculiar? And I think David was really excited to, to do it. Um, I know he kept harping me that his monologues were too long and he had to <laughs> memorize all these lines, but but um, he 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 was just really, really interesting and brought an interesting take and an effortless take on this character, and it really injected what we needed in terms of taking all these characters uh, that Abby encounters along this journey, of taking them right to the edge of... Uh, Believability, or or what you, what or what an audience would accept as mm-hmm. something believable in this world that we were trying to create. So, he he was a lot of fun, and he and like you said, he is the he's so funny, he's so gracious and and really really kind, and you know incredibly smart. So it was yeah a
0: treat. He in the film plays Walter, a podcaster. He does his podcast from the basement of a restaurant, and then he works, I guess, during the day, he works upstairs cleaning up and doing things. And uh, it is the most incredible place. It's the Flying Saucer Restaurant. And when I saw this, I thought, wow, this is great production uh, here. You, you, you've you built this place, which is so otherworldly and weird for a movie that kind of likes to keep you off balance a little bit. And then I find out that it's real.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, um, I think part of me writing this script to um a specific place was that i also set it in specific places and you know trying to create a a world you know a cinematic version of niagara falls and what it can represent which is this tourist place which is you know colorful and eccentric and quirky and odd and this ufo diner is is all of those things.
0: (laughs) And it's been there for 40 years or something,
1: right? Yeah, been there forever. And, you know, I would eat there all the time when I passed (laughs) through. And it's it's such an interesting place and and uniquely uh, fits the ethos of Niagara Falls, I thought. And so, you know, David Cronenberg, UFO Diner, podcast, it all sort of – it kind of wrote itself. It almost feels (laughs) like – you know, a lot of people ask me if I wrote this part for David Cronenberg – but you know, I wouldn't be presumptuous to right. think that I would write something for David Cronenberg and then he would do it. So, But it, it, it is quite interesting how it all seems to fit effortlessly. It, it
0: does. It fits together perfectly. And Cronenberg really is uh, such a pleasure to see on screen because, again, obviously we know him as a director. He has acted a little bit, but he brings uh, an effortlessness to it. Even when he makes one of the great uh, uh, entrances in you know, in in recent memory, uh, he's in a scuba gear and he walks out of a out of the river, and I thought, I don't know, is this an homage to like Jacqueline Bisset coming out of the ocean? <laughs> is it what? What exactly is this? But apparently, it's again based on something that actually happened.
1: Yeah, it is something that actually happened. So when we were writing the script, uh, my co writer James and I, we would take these trips to Niagara Falls just to kind of get in the the headspace and you know. In one of our early trips, I took him... You know, what's another interesting thing is that there's a prologue where we kind of show Mm -hmm. this memory of a kidnapping, and we ended up shooting it in the exact place where I had experienced this. So we would come to this place all the time and kind of just soak it in and try to, you know, be inspired. And during one of our early trips there, we were kind of walking around, and I was talking to him about, you know, I I think I was standing right here or somewhere in this area. And then, lo and behold... Out of the depths of the river, <laughs> this scuba diver kind of, kind of just kind of waddled out of the water, and it was very, very surreal because it was there was nobody else there. It was very quiet. I think it was sort of late fall, and it it, it really made an impression. And then you know, James and I looked at each other and was like, "Well, we know how this character is going to get introduced in this film." You know, I didn't even know that people could scuba dive. In the Niagara River, yeah. and it and it is and it's and it's actually a thing. It's a thing,
0: and they find things, right? Yeah. They find things that people have thrown over the falls, and 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 you can actually—I don't know if you make a living from it, but certainly you can supplement your income because a lot of stuff goes over the falls.
1: A lot of stuff goes over the falls, and of course, you know, the War of eighteen twelve. You know, there's right. a lot of history that takes place in that region, so you know, you can find you know genuine treasures.
0: Niagara Falls is the setting for this. It is woven into the fabric of Disappearance at Clifton Hill, but you weren't entirely welcome there when you were shooting the film, is that right? Uh, that is
1: correct, yeah. <laughs> it was, Um, it w- yeah, during production, you know, I'd be lying to say it wasn't a challenge, because, you know, like I just, like we just talked about, I wrote the movie to specific locations, mm-hmm. and was really thinking about how this was all going to play out, uh, how we were going to shoot it, and then when we had this massive kind of roadblock of uh, the the Clifton Hill BIA, sort of just kind of putting a barrier and a wall around their their jurisdiction, right. you know, it became a challenge for sure. So I think it was, you know, they, you know, it's a big tourist area. And I think they are very sensitive of how they're portrayed. Yeah. And they wanted to, I think they want to control the narrative of how Clifton Hill is is presented to the world and I think they thought that this was uh, not going to be helpful in what they were projecting
0: it's a murder mystery who knows what, <laughs> what the story is going to be really yeah. yeah yeah. but
1: I mean my argument to them and what we always tried to tell them is that you know this is yeah this isn't a postcard this isn't an advertisement for Niagara Falls right. but in a way it is you know when you think of you know when I think of New York I think of Scorsese's New York you know in the yeah. 70s and that that's certainly not a not a, a tourism video of yeah. uh, of New York, but in a way it is. It made me it made me obsessed with New York when I was growing up and wanting to to live in that world that Scorsese would create, or all these other kind of filmmakers that make films of a certain place. And even if it's not a a neo realistic portrayal of Niagara Falls, I think what it what we tried to do is create something that was very alluring and mysterious and interesting and would get people. Interested in wanting to kind of explore Niagara Falls and create a mythology, uh, and which which cinema has a, a unique uh, way of, of doing.
0: It makes me want to go to the Flying Saucer mm-hmm. Restaurant. I'll tell you that there much. You go. Uh, when you were designing the film and thinking about it, did you have a film noir in mind? You mentioned Chinatown. I can see kind of direct parallels there. Uh, but did you have films in mind that you looked to as reference? Uh, yeah, definitely. I
1: you know whenever I m- make a film, I usually kind of pick out a couple of spirit animal films right, that yeah, I think yeah, of yeah. not as direct, um, s- and sometimes you don't even see the correlation. But for me, for whatever reason, there's a there's a quality uh, that I'm s- searching for and seeking out, and right. and th- these other movies maybe represented. And for me, you know, Chinatown was one of them. My simple elevator pitch for the movie was: I wanted to make. Uh, polanski's chinatown but set it in niagara falls right. you know water and power all that <laughs> stuff um but uh, another one was actually uh bong jung uh, memories of murder yeah which yeah. is um which is a serial killer film very different than than um clifton hill but obviously bong jung-ho and now as you know the world knows he, he is a master in terms mm-hmm. of tone and shifting tones and bending genres and so, and Memories of Murder has been sort of a seminal film for me. I've I've loved it since I saw it, you know, 20 years ago almost.
0: And since Parasite won everything, will become a lot easier to see. Yes, now. yes.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think Criterion picked it yeah. up and and all that yeah. stuff, which I'm very very excited for because I would talk to people about Memories of Murder all the time, yeah. and just thought it was sort of under underseen. And so hopefully this will this will help that. And another one that I I looked at a lot was uh, uh Coppola's The, Conversa- the Conversation. Mm, yeah. Um, Just in terms of obsession and kind of being obsessed with like little things and and um, again, a very different kind of film if you look at it. But those were sort of three spirit animal movies for me in terms of uh, this film.
0: I also thought of Videodrome a Mm -hmm. little bit because there are these incredible video segments that you have and they are heightened for sure. But they are kind of the sort of promotional video. I think that you might have seen in the nineteen, you know, late seventies into the eighties kind of thing, mm-hmm. uh, for you know a, a, a traveling act of music, of uh, magicians. Yeah, I mean, we Niagara referenced
1: Falls. a lot. Yeah. It, it, it was fun going to because um, they're hard to find, and yeah. you know, you can find some of them on YouTube. But you know, where you can find them is at public libraries. Oh yeah. There's, they still have VHS <laughs> copies of things like that and it was really really fun to kind of uh recreate it and you know we got um Evan and Galen Johnson who work with Guy Madden right. to to help us create these things and it was it that was a real that was a real real joy to to
0: to kind of play in that space as Th- well they are pure eye candy too mm-hmm. they're so much fun we're talking about uh the, the this film sort of specifically but when you were growing up making your weekend trips to Niagara Falls uh, i guess that was the boom. You're a young guy. The boom of the DVDs. You can get pretty much anything you you would ever imagine. Looking at what movies were you renting from the video store that kind of inspired you?
1: Well, uh, I mean, I predate DVDs a little bit in the yeah. sense that my my first collection of movies were VHS tapes. Yeah. My uh, parents owned a restaurant, and beside it was a was a video store. And you know, this was the era of VHS tapes, and I would pour through. VHS tapes, like um, you know, two or three a day, and I got really, really um, obsessed with movies. Yeah. And I'm one of those guys that you know fell in love with movies early, and never really had another hobby. Yeah, you know, I played basketball a little bit, but other than that, it was just all movies. Never played video games. Never, you know, never really dated. And wasn't very good at that when I was growing up. So, um, yeah, movies were, were were everything to me, and, and it was it was and it really kind of informed. Because I was watching all sorts of movies, it mm-hmm. really informed the kind of films I wanted to make, which right. is, you know, my film previous to Clifton Hill is, you know, is a Korean language chamber drama, which is, you know, very different yeah. than than this. And I think it sort of speaks to my interest, which is, you know, I, as much as I love Corey Ada and Edward Yang and, and Hu yeah. um, I you know, I love... You know, Steven Spielberg right. and I love Christopher Nolan and 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 so sort of that spectrum of filmmaking is something that really really interests me and and um, yeah I, I'm trying to think if there was a, something that interested me or like a DVD but yeah I, just,
0: I, I loved love you just love them all I, well, I love them all I, I grew up in a very small town and but we had a very big movie theater right in the middle of this mm-hmm. tiny little town in Nova Scotia and the reason we had this giant movie theater is that at one point, it seemed like my town of Liverpool, Nova Scotia was going to become a big port city. So they built stuff. They built an opera house and there was a vaudeville house. They did all this and then it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. And so we were stuck with these incredible structures. Uh, There was a, a... a hotel that had a dining room that could fit hundreds of people at a time when only about a thousand people lived in the town. I mean, it was wow. really a strange place to grow up. And uh, the movie theater, though, because we were kind of at the nearing the end of the distribution chain, mm-hmm. we didn't get movies straight away. So growing up there mm-hmm. in the 70s, I would go, I was movie obsessed, and I would go see whatever the movies were. Mm-hmm. And it was always... Uh, a Bruce Lee movie, probably as a as the Saturday matinee yep. Uh and then it could be whatever Saturday night fever, or it could be Tartovsky's stalker, depending on what they got right and and it there was no rhyme or reason to it. And uh, that was it. And I just went to see everything. And I think that's uh, again, as you were speaking to the beauty of the early days of VHS, where you were just exposed to everything. That's why I don't really have a favorite genre. I I I like storytelling. I like going to see films in all their iterations.
1: Yeah, and for me, it really is. It really is that I. And now, as a you know, as a aspiring filmmaker or a filmmaker that's trying to hopefully do this for 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 a, for a yeah. long time, you know, I, I'm really. In love with, like, you know, a a vision or a voice mm-hmm. in filmmaking, and whatever the genre may be, a, a specificity to what a filmmaker is trying to do, and trying to be adventurous and take risks. Like, yeah. I think that's what I really, really respond to, regardless of the genre. So whether it's um, you know, whether it's a comedy or or a noir or you know a very austere art house movie, I'm attracted to all that, and I'm really, really. And I marvel at, you know, filmmakers that are really, really good at what they do.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, you have said that Godfather 1 and 2 are the two movies that everyone who wants to make movies should watch. Why is that? Well. I mean, for, you know, I mean, there are very obvious reasons Yeah, I mean, I
1: think that's just such an easy answer. I should have come up with something more
0: (laughs) obscure. But But they are masterfully made movies. They
1: are masterfully made movies that are incredibly confident Mm -hmm. and you know and for me it it does a thing that movies are very uniquely positioned to do which is they can take you into a world in a different way obviously books and and song like you know mm-hmm. every artistic medium can do that but to 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 be able to feel like you see people and know them and breathe with them and live in their world and space is is such a uniquely cinematic experience and yeah those two films are you know I mean, I'm not the only one to say it. It's yeah. very, like, you know, it's very easy answer. But um, yeah, they're you know, I watch The Godfather one and two, you know, every couple of years, yeah. and it's it's one of those films where some films don't stand the test of time. Uh, maybe they're of a moment in place, uh, but The Godfather, even in 2020, is just a stone cold masterpiece.
0: It really is, and I saw it recently on the big screen, so mm-hmm. I know that I've seen it on the big screen a few times. Years ago, many years ago, and then television. I mean, if you, fl- <laughs> if you flick around enough, you'll find it somewhere. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's always playing somewhere. Uh, and one day we were kicking around the house, flicking around. It comes on. I'm watching it, and my wife says, "You know, it's playing. Uh, they're doing a little revival of it down the street." We went to see it, mm-hmm. um, and it is a different film again on the big screen. If yeah. you're if you're only used to seeing it on television, go see it at a theater if you can. Uh, the Brando's performance is uh, it, it, unbelievable on the big screen. You see little nuances there that I'd missed on television. Mm-hmm. Uh, the color saturation, the inky blacks mm-hmm. that they have all the way through the film are Gordon just Willis, so yeah. beautiful. Yeah. Gordon Willis's cinematography—it is so beautiful to look at. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really an incredible film. And you were talking about cinema being uniquely positioned to to allow you into the lives of these characters. I think one of the things that, that uh, works so well about disappearance at Clifton Hill is the fact that you show and don't tell us stuff. It's easy if you want us in on the story to say, well, Tuppence, you've been, or whatever, (laughs) Abby, you've been living in in, and telling this, this long backstory, giving us exposition, but you allow uh, her actions. To tell us everything we need to know. And my favorite moments in movies are always when we are allowed uh, the respect by the filmmaker to figure it out for ourselves. Show me, don't tell me.
1: Yeah, and that was a big, that was sort of a big mission statement with this film from its conception, which is how do I make uh, a mystery film, a noir film, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that has shades of a thriller or a horror film and, and all these other kind of genres, but make it cerebral, but... Still compelling and interesting and draw people and without sort of the, you know, you know, this is this is spoiler non spoiler but you know how do I make a film where it, it, the third act isn't you know our hero tied to a chair You're right yeah yeah with, the, yeah with the bad guy with the gun in her face yeah. telling her how it all went down actually yeah. you know like how do we not do that how do we subvert these kinds of uh, uh, tropes in yeah. these kinds of films but still make it interesting and that it was all to this to that point that you're saying which is how do we make it how do we show not tell how do we mm-hmm. make it interesting how do we trust the audience and that they'll bring you know their knowledge of these kinds of films and then be kind of entertained or pleasantly surprised when we subvert some of these things and And yeah, so that was really – that was a big sort of charge when we were thinking about the film and then when we were making it and when I was editing it and everything else. Like, you know, we actually pulled back even more from a a screenplay, which was quite sparse in terms of how we uh,
0: gave the information. Well, I find it interesting that David Cronenberg is in this film because the the style of storytelling – is something that I think of his earlier films where he just cut back and cut back and cut back. They are lean and mean. And uh, that's something I think that is echoed here a little bit. There's not a... I don't think there's any flabby bits in this film. You have you have trimmed this back to its essence.
1: Yeah. it's It was all in to really kind of, like you said, kind of do that, but it's not a... It's not like it's not an action film, so it's not a born film where it's like a breakneck pace. It's really about drawing people in and just getting them to kind of stumble down this rabbit hole, kind of very much like the character. You know, everything that we try to do is to kind of echo and mirror how the character is feeling. So even when you watch this movie or for people that do watch this movie, you know, she encounters more and more characters as she goes down this rabbit hole. And they become a little bit as she gets more obsessed, and and the war, and the walls become a, a bit darker. Yeah, you know the characters become more darker, almost as a reflection of the way she's projecting them. You know, so. yeah.
0: There is absolutely a couple of scenes uh, nearer the end where uh, you you start to feel like uh, uh, everyone in this movie has has uh, they're, they're from an alternate universe or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we just a minute left. Uh, the film is called "The Disappearance at Clifton Hill." It's opening wide across the country. Will it be playing in Niagara Falls? It absolutely will. Is I'm, it? <laughs> I'm really, really excited to say that it's going to be playing
1: at the Cineplex in Niagara Falls, which is, uh, which I'm really, really excited about. Probably you, know, you
0: went there a lot when you were a kid. Yes,
1: right? yes, yes. I don't think it was there at the time, right. but it's uh, it's the big theater in yeah. town, and I know when I was when I was writing the film. You know my reprieve from writing because I would go to different motels right. to to write just to, to get into the headspace of writing the script. I would I would just go to the the cineplex in Niagara Falls to watch movies, and I'm just yeah I'm really excited because this is you in know in in, you know I know the the BIA was yes. was concerned and everything, but this is really my love letter to Niagara Falls. So I'm really really excited, and I hope people in Niagara Falls watch it and are and are, get a get a get a, a thrill out of seeing their city just in a very very cinematic way.
0: Albert, congratulations on the movie. Thank you. The the film is called Disappearance at Clifton Hill. My guest in studio has been the co-writer and director, Albert Shin. The film is playing across the country in a theater uh, near you, especially if you're living in Niagara Falls. You can go check it out there. My thanks to you for listening. My thanks to Robert on the board, and we'll talk again next week.